Evidence and Answers. The millennial generation communicates in unique ways. Is social media effective? Do they want to connect with boomers and busters? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Danny Lehman was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme, Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear any of this message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Let's listen now as Danny Lehman presents practical ways we can reach this new generation for Christ, right here in the conclusion of this message. This is a good thing about this generation. They are an optimistic generation. They want to change the world and they believe that they can. We boomers, come on, we got to wait, we got to, we got to admit this, we were a tad bit selfish. We wanted everything for us and so we were hippies for a while, then we became yuppies and then we took over Wall Street and then we destroyed the country. So we really were going for it but we were selfishly oriented. This generation, and I can tell you from dealing with 20th first century man like I do, a lot of kids that don't even know Jesus really want to make changes in the world. They really want to see the world change. So they're frustrated with us when we don't care about the poor and we just want to give tracts to the poor. It's the equivalent of your house is burning down and two people are up at the second floor and they're burning and we throw them a tract. No, you don't throw them a tract. You get them a ladder and you get them down to save their lives, you know. And so young people are kind of frustrated with kind of a pie-in-the-sky kind of a mentality. Now, I'm an evangelist and I believe in eternal life, but I'm saying you've got to go to where the people are or you're going to fire over the bow and not hit the ship, which is what Paul did in Athens until he got a little bit more wisdom as he went on. They love that little quote out of the Steve Jobs movie where he's trying to talk the marketing guy from Pepsi to come join him in Apple. And he says, you want to spend the rest of your life making sugared water or do you want to change the world? And they love that quote, you know, because they really want to change the world. Now, the positive thing about this from my perspective is when I'm dealing with young people in a classroom of missionaries, I can look at them and say, you really can change the world. Let me tell you about William Carey. Let me tell you about Hudson Taylor. Let me tell you about Zinzendorf. Let me tell you about Wesley. Let me tell you about Finney. And to just give them historical perspective that you can change the world, and that fits right into their optimism, which is a good thing about this generation. Number four, they're not religious, but they're spiritual. They look at us, now this is just a general characteristic, they look at us as a passing relic of history. The Christianity, yes, uh, the founding fathers of Christians, we know all that, but we're in an evolutionary process now, and now you can't, ri- Danny, come on. Are you going to tell me that Muslims, a billion Muslims, almost a billion Hindus, 350 million Buddhists, they're all a little lost, right? Because they don't believe in your Jesus. Come on. This is the 21st century. We've got to be a little bit more. And that kind of what we call syncretistic thinking is a stronghold in the way young people think. And it's really not their fault. They were raised in this era where everything changes and everything's different and everything's okay. A lot of us think that the world is loaded with atheists. It's not. 85% of the world is religious. 15% of the world are either atheists or agnostics. If you don't know the difference, an atheist knows they're no God and an agnostic just doesn't know. <laughs> so an agnostic is kind of a humble atheist, you know, so you've got to give him a break. It's easier to witness to an agnostic than to an atheist because the atheist already has got it figured out. 
but 75% of them consider themselves to be spiritual. And yet, on surveys, they fill out surveys that 60% of them say that they're Christians. But when you ask them questions like, what does your Christian life mean to you? The kind of questions you and I would ask. Uh, are you born again? Uh, has your lifestyle changed? Uh, do you try to abstain from sin? Uh, do you give this? Do you, do you love Jesus? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? These kind of questions. It all gets real muddy because they see spirituality as this a big beef stew of all the religious things that are going together. I was watching my friend Ray Comfort is a good friend of Kirk Cameron, and they went on the Oprah show one day. Now, don't ask me why I was watching the Oprah show. I, I, I don't make it my regular TV fare. But Oprah had these guys on, and they brought Nick Vajokic in as a guest. Now, if you know Nick, he's got no arms and no legs, and he's a fascinating character, loves the Lord. And, of course, because of his handicap and because of him, he's got the whole audience captivated. Oprah says, tell us your story. How do you deal with this, Nick? And Nick says, it's because of my faith in Jesus Christ. He really laid out the gospel very clear. And Oprah was just clapping and laughing and, and seemed to be totally into it. And I, went, I said to my wife, I said, maybe Oprah got saved. I mean, she was born in a Baptist church back in Baltimore. Maybe, you know. Then I went... And I don't know why I was doing this a couple weeks later, but I watched her again a couple weeks later, and Deepak Chakra was one of her guests. And she has the same smile and the same clap when Deepak Chakra is given all this new age stuff about auras and positive and negative energy and God is everywhere and everywhere is God and all that kind of stuff, kind of what we would call Rama Lama. And Oprah didn't see any, any contradiction. I don't think Oprah is a hypocrite. I think Oprah is representative of the way younger people think following people like Oprah and following their friends at university and wherever they happen to meet them that they just have this, what we would call syncretistic way of thinking. The big challenge for us in missionary terms is we need to contextualize the gospel in a way that can fit in a given culture. Like Paul said, I have become all things to all men that I might save some. Now those of us that are here that are over 40 we can't be like them in that sense of being young. But we can do our best to try to reach young people. And I think you'll find if you go after them, there'll be plenty of them that'll respond to you as we talk about a couple of these other issues here. Number five is they're a connected generation. Some of them are overconnected. They're connected not only to the internet and to their screens. There's a new term that has come up in sociology and they call it helicopter parents. Helicopter parents are parents that hover over their kids all the time. Now, even though there's been an increase in divorce in the culture and in the church, there are still young people who really look for help from their parents. 60% of them said they still value getting input from their parents, which is something the boomers didn't do. Anybody remember the uh, don't trust anybody over 30 thing? That's what I used to say when I was a hippie. And then I became 30, and I thought I had a lot of wisdom after that. 60% of them value parental input. The sixth one is also a positive, and that is all the statistics show Christian and non-Christian young people, they value mentoring. They would love to have, even on shows like Friends and Seinfeld and other popular television shows, they talk about mentoring and a protege, and they talk about an older person being able to carry along a younger person. That's what we would call discipleship or discipling. Paul spoke to Timothy. Paul's a boomer. In, he was in his 50s when he wrote this. Timothy was probably 29 or 30 when he received it. So Paul was mentoring. He called Timothy his son several times in the New Testament. Then once to the Corinthians, Paul said that you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but not many fathers. 
And Timothy is a son that I have begotten in the gospel. So he was talking about Timothy as a son. Then he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, Tim, the things that you've learned from me that I got from God, and you learn these things in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust those to reliable men who shall be able to teach others also. So Paul was looking down the generational scope and seeing four generations of disciples all based upon what some people call mentoring, what we would call disciples. One of the guys, Tim Elmore, in one of his books, he says, what young people are saying today, to the shock of those of us who consider ourselves hot Bible teachers, is that they want a guide on the side, not necessarily a sage on the stage. They're not as starstruck by hot preachers as some of us were in our generations. They basically want someone to love them. They're not impressed with titles. I've written six books. One of my books was a bestseller in England for three weeks, I think. But, you know, I I got a little bit going as an author. And I find that I can go into a different situation. If 25 years ago I went in, oh, he's an author. We better listen to him. Now it's, oh, he's an author. Let's see if he backs up what he says. Because they want to put our feet to the fire and they want us to produce. And you know what? They ought to be able to do that. And we ought to be able to produce. And We don't want to throw all the blame on their leaving church on us, but some of the blame we need to be able to take and we need to recognize. But basically, the Gallup poll as well as the Barna Group backs up the fact that in general, this was an extensive poll done a couple years ago by Barna, we laugh at the same jokes, we go to the same movies, we get entertained in the same way, we give about the same amount of money away, and we are involved in social projects just a tad bit more than the world. But in general, we're pretty much like our non-Christian neighbors. And we get mad at other people, and we sue people and take them to court, just like those Christians take each other to court, and then there are big media blasts about the Christians are not loving each other, and everybody from the Dugers to everybody else, and they can't wait to go after people like Tim Tebow. I mean, it is a free-for-all on Christians, all to cut down our authenticity. What's going to change it? It's for us to be authentic and for us to be real and to be real Christ followers. There was an evangelical pastor who had a conference last year, and in one fell swoop, he threw about 450 million Christians under the bus and accused most Charismatics and Pentecostals of not even being Christians. Now, whether or not he should have done that is up to him and God, but I know the way my young friends saw that. They said, Danny, I don't care if that guy's doctrinally precise and can dissect the Bible like a like we would dissect a frog in a high school classroom, but he doesn't have any love, obviously. And if he doesn't have any love, he's not like Jesus. And if he doesn't have any love, he's not filled with the Spirit of God, so I don't want nothing to do with him. And you might say, yeah, but it matters that it's true. Well, yeah, it does matter if it's true, but they don't care. They care whether it's real. And this is why a lot of young people today, they want to experience God before they want an explanation about God. They don't care what the Apostles' Creed says. Now, I'm not... Obviously, I believe what the Apostle Creed says, but I'm already in the bag. It's not about me. It's about them. And it's about how do we get them to see their need for truth and how can we spend the time to help explain to them the gospel and they say, we want to experience God. Now, this is not only for, you know, what we might call Pentecostals or Charismatics. The Baptist author, Henry Blackaby, wrote a wonderful book called Experiencing God. It's not enough just to, well, I got a brain, I got a Bible, I got a book, and I got to figure it out. No, we've got the Holy Spirit, and we need to be able to show this generation a supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired and value-driven life. This is why Rick Warren's book was so popular. It's a purpose-driven life. And I heard people criticizing him, saying, well, what do you mean purpose-driven? We should be spirit-driven. I go, 
you know, he was just trying to know the purpose of your life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And hopefully that will be a magnet and will attract younger people to the gospel. Now, I know a lot of people are complaining about the church and a lot of it is unwarranted, but it's still there. Number seven, they communicate differently. This is obvious. Uh, I still like to call people on the phone. But I can, my, my, my young millennial friends will never return my phone calls. My own son doesn't return my phone calls. <laughs> but he returns my texts. <laughs> so I got to communicate to him the way he's going to communicate. If I'm stuck at the airport and I need a ride, I don't call him. I, I text him because I know that's how he communicates. Now I can say, well, he should answer the phone. And I'm going to sit at the airport all day if I do that. So therefore, I've got to communicate with him the way he needs to be communicated too. Number eight, uh, they prefer transformation over information. I'm from Calvary Chapel, so our culture is Bible-driven, verse-by-verse teaching. Evangelism is really primary. So, you know, we're pretty evangelical down the line and a little bit proud of it, I guess. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But I was talking to a megachurch Calvary Chapel pastor a couple years ago, and I said to him kind of a mantra that I had been repeating, but I had never really searched out the, the data on it. And I said, back in the 70s, Bob... This was true. You go into a college campus, and like I gave my little thing about passing out tracts, and they would ask if it's true. Nowadays, they don't care whether or not it's true. They just care if it works. And he says, Danny, he says, how did you get saved? How did I get saved? We got saved by the power of God in our lives. We somehow saw that we were sinners, and this is not to demean apologetics at all. It's just to say that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What apologetics does is it lifts the blinders off of their eyes so they can see. Now, they can still see and turn away from the Lord, but apologetics helps to bust up the strongholds of these thoughts in their mind. And I'm just simply saying that we are in for a challenge with this generation because how do you talk to somebody when you say, Jesus can't have rose from the dead and not raised from the dead at the same time? He either did or he didn't. Well, Danny, that's the way you think because you're a Westerner and, you know, but in the East we think a little different. It's like Robbie Zacharias said to a guy who had one of those questions one time. He said, yeah, but in Calcutta, we look both ways before we cross the street because it's either the bus or us. And as was said last night by Pat, these are basic things. You go into a bank, you're not going to say, you give them a $300 check and they give you a $3 check back. And the teller just says, that's the way I see it. I call them the way I see them, like, a, like a um, blind umpire, but no. They need to be able to see that it's the power of God, although we do need, but the power of God transforms lives. I had the privilege about two years ago to lead my dad to Christ five days before he died. My dad was in the GI generation. He was in prison camp in Germany three times, escaped three times. He was a World War II hero. His books at Barnes & Noble, there'll be books about him, uh, that, that he's in these certain books, but a hardcore non-believer, and he came to Christ five days before he died, and part of it, and I ain't taking no credit, but part of it was I was consistent. I walked with Jesus for 38 years. When I first came to the Lord, they said, ah, oh, Danny, you just took another acid trip. You'll be back soon. Then you'd be into some other trip. It was surfing, and then it was this, then it was that. But Jesus Christ changed my life, and he saw that for 38 years. And praise the Lord, he's going to be in heaven, and I can't wait to see him. Cause... But I did say to the Lord, why'd you make me sweat it out so long? Number nine, this generation prefers belonging over believing. Now, this doesn't mean one is any better than the other, but it's simply providing an atmosphere of 
good tolerance. And I think Pat did a great job last night. Yes, Christians should be tolerant of people. But you don't want to have the bad tolerance that lets everything fly, but you want to have love for people who are, think different than you do. Basic virtues of patience and honesty and integrity and authenticity to the non-Christian that you're talking to, especially in this generation, but for all generations. And then number 10, this generation values experience over explanation. I first started dealing with the generation, I'd say, but you, you got to have truth before you can, and it just doesn't work out that clean and that clear all the time. And so if there's anything about a diverse generation is that they need diverse evangelistic methods. I like to depress some of my students sometime and say, you know, there's roughly 5.7 billion non-Christians in the world, so we need approximately 5.7 billion evangelistic methods. <laughs> Everybody gets all depressed. But what I mean by that is don't put this in a cookie-cutter kind of a thing. They won't let you. Go to them and do what you can, and I'm going to give you five quick ways to reach this generation. Number one, time. Time is a valuable commodity. What they are doing with their time is texting, watching video games, racing through life, answering texts, looking up things, and among the other things of going to school and all the things that are involved in their lives, and yet church just gets squeezed out. I was recently in Japan... We were talking about evangelism in Japan, and they said, Danny, these people just don't have time to listen to the gospel. It's nothing evil. It's just the culture is such a... They just don't have time. They work six days a week. They got to please the boss. They got to go out for sake after work and all this kind of stuff, and they just don't have the time. But we need to be able to carve out the time and to be able to do what we can to be able to help some of these younger folks. Now, most of us that are older don't think they want anything to do with us. We think our ship has sailed and now it's their ballpark and they're going to play on it. But I want to tell you, young people value the opinions of elders, especially people who love them right where they are. And I was talking to somebody about revival a couple days ago and I said, you know, out of the Jesus movement, the movements that made it were those who valued the input of the older as well as receiving the youth and the fire of the younger. And we need to be humble on both sides of the issue. We older people need to get out of the way and let them go and get under them to help them achieve their destiny, but at the same time not compromise the faith or anything like that. So time satisfies their need for community and family. Matthew 13.52 says, A wise man who is instructed in the kingdom of heaven reaches into his treasure and brings out things that are new and old. I think that's always a good combination new and old. Number two, discipleship. Talked about that already, but this is simply look for someone that you can disciple. Now, the problem with this is sometimes it gets so rigid and we get a one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Okay, I'll meet with you on Tuesday and I'll disciple you. How you doing? Fine. How was church last week? Fine. And you just can't get things. So you want it to be a little bit more organic, a little bit more natural, but simply pray and ask God to help you make one disciple. I don't know if you've ever done the math on this, but it's, it's a really edifying thing to do. One person led one person to Christ and discipled that person for a year and then changed or, or challenged and discipled that person to disciple somebody else for a year. Meanwhile, this disciple went out and discipled somebody else in the second year. By the third year, you'd have eight disciples. By the fourth year, you've had 16. By the fifth year, you'd have 32. And on and on it would go till within one generation of 30 years, you will have won the whole planet to Christ <laughs> just because of multiplication 
So those of us that are a little bit older and we think our ship has sailed, just disciple one person. Go to the pastor in the church and say, Pastor, I know you don't have all the time in the world, but is there anybody in the church that maybe one of the young people or maybe somebody that one of our college-age students or maybe one of our international students that might need a friend and you and grandma bring them over to your house and give them a nice big dinner and uh, talk about culture, whether if they're international, if not, just some kind of way. But I think if you pray about it, God will give you creative ways to do it. Number three, and this is what we're getting this weekend, and that is teach them to think. Now, they're not going to think the way we do, but there's nothing wrong with trying to teach people how to think critically and not just to buy everything. One of the problems with, and this is all generations of Americans right now, we are really gullible. You know, if it's on the Internet, it's true, right? Amen? No, that's not an amen. It's that it's not necessarily true, but we are gullible. We will fall for anything if we don't stand for something, as Pat said. Number four, and I don't want to make this an overemphasis, but I certainly don't want to underestimate it, is there is a huge spiritual warfare going on. There's a huge spiritual warfare that's going on in this world for the minds and hearts of our young people. And we have got to do our part to do our best to respond to this need and to be able to reach them and to be able to recognize that. So I would encourage you to step up the prayer meetings, step up the spiritual warfare times, spend time, and you'll find a lot of the young people that you already have in your church love worship and they love prayer meetings. Whereas my generation was a little bit more academic and let's study the Bible. A lot of these guys want to really encounter God through prayer and intercession and seeking God and fasting the spiritual disciplines and so forth. Champion that. Encourage them. Learn from that. Go with them to the prayer meetings. Go with them to the worship times. Try to listen to the Hillsong and the other groups that are out on the internet that are trying to encourage the church to be a worshiping church. And we can learn a lot from the young people. And that's one way we do spiritual warfare. And number five, this is the last one, and this is a slam dunk. Just love them. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's the goodness and kindness of God that leads us to repentance, as it tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Let me go through all of them really quick. Number one is they're overwhelmed. Number two, diverse. Number three, they're optimistic. Number four, they're spiritual, but not necessarily Christian. Number five, they're connected, sometimes overconnected. Number six, they're hungry for mentoring. Number seven, they communicate differently than previous generations. Number eight, they prefer transformation over information. Number nine, they prefer belonging over believing. And number 10, they prefer experience over explanation. Now, does that mean we shouldn't explain things? Does it mean we shouldn't preach absolute truth? Of course it doesn't mean that. We need truth. The truth is what sets us free. But if there's a blockage and you can't get the truth across, you got to find a door through which to enter their heart. And I want to suggest that there are various interest doors, and I think Paul's reaching the Greeks in Acts 17 is a great demonstration of that. Great question. Uh, The question was, doesn't it all boil down to faith, and how do you inculcate faith in someone? Well, you cannot. And I think Oz would agree with me on this, and I think Pat would too. Nobody has ever been argued into the kingdom of God. We're basically talking about evidence and arguments and all that, which is essential, and the Bible tells us to reason with people. But where faith comes in is faith is the substance of things that are hoped for and the evidence of things we can't see. Billy Graham is fond of saying, you see the palm tree out there, you you can't see the wind, but you can see the evidence that the wind is blowing by its effect on the palm tree. 
So what we need to do to inculcate faith is, first of all, we can't do it. Faith is a gift of God. God has to give the faith, but faith is based upon evidence. So if you can convince somebody that there is wind by looking at the tree, then they'll start believing in wind, even though wind is invisible. God is invisible, so our job is to give people evidence for faith. And sometimes it's the evidence of our own lives that are changed. Sometimes it's just thinking through when somebody says, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And you say, are you absolutely sure about that? And you got them. Now, you're not trying to play semantic games, but you're just trying to use common evidential, what we call apologetics, to open their hearts that hopefully they would receive the gospel. But one of the things I've learned, like in the Muslim world, for instance, 90% of the converts in the Muslim world are coming in through visions and dreams and miracles. And uh, how, how can you... I can't just cook up a miracle. God's got to give the miracle. But this is why uh, often these things are very important. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>